0: Welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. This is the Risk and Reward Podcast. My name is Holland Henderson, financial advisor with Allen & Company. Today, we have one of my most favorite people, my friend, Chris Hammond. How are you doing today, man? Good. Thanks for having me, Holland. Good. Hey, so for people who are new to the show, who are you and what do you do?
1: Yep. My name's Chris Hammond and I'm a portfolio manager and financial advisor at Allen & Company on the Allen, Albert, and Houghton Hammond Group and uh happy to be here i think this is number four or five that we've done
0: yeah yeah and i was actually looking back into my show notes um and seeing when we started it was over a year ago man yeah that we started doing this me and you
1: life's life's a little bit different but you know also more the same
0: It <laughs> is very true man <laughs> things come at you fast who is that's that uh not parker lewis that's uh who's the other one never mind oh man dancing in chicago is great uh I, i'll probably get beat up by my friends if they listen to this um Parker, uh, oh, never mind. Um, it'll come to me. It'll and come it'll, to and you I'll about kick, the third second. Yeah, it'll kick my. I'll kick myself for that. So uh, I wanted to start off with very important topics. I'm calling this show the Rundown with Chris Hammond, and you know, th- we have to talk about priorities. And the yep. first priority is football season
1: is now over. Amen, man. Well, I should really shed a tear over that. It
0: is. I'm sad
1: about it. Yeah. Now, really we, am- now we've got you know what, 200 days until until mm. the season comes back, but spring football is yep. almost here
0: yes we have spring football and then also the draft i mean that's important but that's i mean that's just kind of a little bit of a fix so uh, as far as a year in review what was our takeaway from that in your opinion
1: yep so i've got a very personal takeaway which if listeners want to go back and listen to maybe the first episode that we did i think i may have called a, a georgia national championship this year Um yes, you did. and so as a as a self-professed georgia bulldog fan i was i was pleased to see them get over the 41-year hump uh, you know, we didn't have Herschel Walker this year, but but we had a, a heck of a defense. Uh, so that, that's my personal takeaway. But, the, you know, the the landscape of college football, which you and I enjoy talking about so much, has changed radically. In you know, it, it goes back to the old saying, change happens not at all and then all at once. Yep. Um, we are in the world of all at once. If you mix in the college football calendar, which is just incredibly wild and really, you know, there, it's a it's an interesting paradox where the it could be argued that coaching college football is a harder job than coaching in the NFL. Oh, I would agree. Because you have this never-ending risk of players exiting your program. You have to coach those players, you have to play games, you have to prepare them, mm-hmm. and then you also so you're trying to retain talent and get talent constantly 24/7 and there is no meritocracy of a draft to yep. say well you were the la- worst team last year so you get the best draft slot it's the exact opposite the best teams continue to accumulate the most talent that have the most financial and you know other resources and you know if you have a down year you know you you know like Clemson this year yep. which started the year you know I don't know if they were preseason number 1 or number 2 Um, you know, lose the first game to Georgia, get derailed. Now they've lost both their coordinators and they're, you know, now at, you know, what in the NFL would give them a good draft slot to reload. Um, Now they're having to answer a bunch of questions and face the transfer portal and and all these different things.
0: With the transfer portal changes and NIL money, I mean, it's a totally different game than it was five, ten years ago for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. It is difficult because not only do you have a defined timeline, you have to continue to recruit, and there's no contractual obligation for someone to stick around. Mm-hmm. Like they could It could just be the way the winds blow. I mean, golly.
1: I think that point that you made right there, contractual obligations. So if you look back a couple of years – what all these schools were doing, we were building up facilities because mm-hmm. there were so many dollars chasing college football, but you didn't have a mechanism to transfer that to the players. So what did colleges do? They built up massive practice facilities, yeah, they made the best their stadiums posh. that you could have, just deliver that experience. And so you saw an arms race there. Right now, you've seen that that balance shift in the direction of players, which, which is honestly good. There's some value that those folks should – uh, receive because they're they're delivering the revenue on the other side by advertising and all these different things, but they're kind of getting you know all of the pie without any of the calories, if you will. Yeah. Because because they're not employees because there's no collective bargaining agreement and all these different things. There's really not a whole lot that the that the schools are able to extract in terms of terms obligations on the other side of it. And, you know, I've, I've listened to a bunch of stuff on college football. I think what some smart people are starting to say is, you know, the end point may be set, which is however you want to call it. We're getting to either a spot where there's going to be collective bargaining, where there's going to be some sort of players association that has to bargain with the conferences, the schools, the NCAA itself to set in in part those structures or they're going to be university employees And that's going to look you know there's going to be some negatives on the other side of it in terms of for the players they're not going to have the same kind of freedom to move 100 percent freely yep yep. because the schools are dedicating financial resources and so does it look like a two-year required stay or you have to pay back your your nil money
0: yeah this could be really just a loophole couple of years until they figure that out
1: yeah but but if there's one thing that we've learned it's that you know Those those institutions don't move quickly. Yep. And so, you know, you can listen to some really interesting stuff that Nick Saban said on it. And he he more or less puts it this way. He's like, whatever structure you create, I'm going to dominate in. But this isn't a good one. (laughs) That's brilliant. So so
0: another, you know, another question I have for you personally, um, does the Bulldogs championship overshadow the Chiefs loss? I mean, do they wash
1: themselves out? Uh absolutely net positive. Okay. So, you know, I don't I don't know how much we're able to get into this. I did have a parlay on both. So <laughs> if if I didn't like Joe Burrow from the twenty nineteen LSU team that beat Georgia handily, right. I certainly don't like him now as he quarterbacked the Bengals and was was pleased to see Matt Stafford, former Georgia Bulldog win the, win the Super Bowl. Um, but you know, the Chiefs after you know, I grew up in Kansas City, uh for, for listeners that, that likely don't know that, and so I've I've seen a lot of Chiefs games in my day and saw a lot of losses to Peyton Manning's Colts in the divisional round. Oh yeah. And so the last couple of years have honestly been been wonderful. And you've got, you know, unlike college where you've got a two or three year window with your core players. I don't think Patrick Mahomes is is going to leave like Aaron Rodgers, and we might even get, even get into Tom Brady yeah, at some I, point. Well, that was my next but, question. You know, I, I think the future of the Chiefs is bright. So who do you think Brady's replacement is? You know, I th- I think it, at the current moment, who's the odds-on favorite? Kyler Murray, some, Kyler Murray's something up there, like that. Aaron Rodgers but, is up there. You know, the whole thing befuddles me because you've got. You've got San Francisco, which just went to the NFC Championship game, but they're trying to offload Jimmy Garoppolo. You've Ugh. got Kyler Murray, who's got a quarterback whisper, and Cliff Kingsbury over there, but but he's somehow not happy. And I don't know. I I used to get more into the weeds of the NFL. I've, I've traded that for for college, and you know, watching Patrick Mahomes when he's on TV. But you know, I you know, I think Aaron Rodgers in a place like you know, if Sean Payton was still there, New Orleans, I thought would have been an interesting spot. Probably doesn't go there now. Um, you know, maybe he stays somewhere in 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 the north, and you know, maybe he wants to play the Packers. I don't know, but I think Kyler Murray's the current odds-on favorite. Uh, so,
0: do you think that this that this playoff the the playoffs this year? What do you think that was the most interesting playoffs that you've seen in your
1: lifetime? I mean, I think the Bills Chiefs divisional game was. Probably the best football game I've ever witnessed. Yeah, it was. It was so fantastic. Yeah.
0: It was the, I I mean, this, these playoff games, I I sat back and I thought, this has all got to be rigged. It has to be rigged because it was so interesting.
1: I mean, you got Roger Goodell just pulling puppet strings back there. (laughs) That's what I thought. My mind automatically went, this is so good. It has to be. This is like WWE. If you would have told me that they were the Washington Generals and and Harlem Globetrotters out there, I'd have believed it because you know it's just too perfectly scripted.
0: I mean the whole, I mean that game, that game was the icing on the cake. But honestly, the entire, all of the games were extremely
1: interesting. Yeah, I mean, I you know I haven't seen a statistic on it, but you had to have the lowest combined margin of victory for twelve playoff games that's ever that's ever happened. That is
0: really interesting. So, what do you think is next for the NFL? What do you think the biggest moves are going to yeah. be?
1: You know, I think from a high level and just take football overall, college and, and pro, what you saw was a reversal of what's been a long-term trend towards offense. And so what you've seen over the last couple of years is offensive assistants have gotten promoted to head coaching jobs. Mm-hmm you know, the, the traditional mold of find a great defensive coordinator like Kirby Smart or Nick Saban, ultimately. That's kind of gone by the wayside, and people have been looking for Steve Sarkisians and Lane Kiffins or whoever that – Cliff Kingsbury in, in the NFL or uh, Sean McVay. Yeah. But even though you had great prolific offenses, you know, your, your couple injuries are just, you know, a, an off year away from defense still being important. And so I think, you know, maybe this year was – kind of an over correction of what you're likely to see over the next three or five years. But I think you're going to see more balance where, you know, great defense can still win games. I mean, if you look at why the Rams won the Super Bowl, as prolific as their team was, it's Robert incredible. Woods went down, OBJ went down, Cooper Cup still won the game, and yep. he was the MVP. But it was not the offense that won that game. It was Aaron Donald, yep. and you've got somehow you've you've got Von Miller rescued. <laughs> you've got the top lockdown corner who still got beat a couple times, but Jalen Ramsey, and you know you cannot forsake that side of the ball, which I think people are going to remember for years to come. It was extremely interesting to look at how much um,
0: parity there was between the Rams and last year's Bucks. Yeah, I mean there it was it was really interesting on how much money was spent to bring in. Some common name players from mm-hmm. other teams that were disenchanted and then go and win a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean Stafford, Von Miller, yep. I mean OBJ. I mean
1: it's it's almost like the baseball playbook. Yeah, where you know you have a team. You know the Braves are a good example where mm-hmm. you know they they won the the World Series where you have kind of a decision point point and football it really starts before the season but they still went out and got obj during the season yep and so you've got kind of the do we do we sell our assets and prepare for another year or do we load the boat and for the rams it was getting you know matt stafford i would argue where they said you know this is the year we're going to go out we're going to stock up and we're going to try to deliver a super bowl yeah what what's
0: the next year they get a first round draft pick I, mean, it's, I don't I think know. It's
1: four is, it years the, from is it the 2030s? <laughs> I think <laughs> it's four years from now. This is
0: crazy. Yeah, it's nuts to think about. So, what are we going to watch now that uh, the that football's over with?
1: Well, I would say the Olympics, but I think the closing <laughs> ceremonies just happened there. You know, likely, you know, unfortunately, probably one of the lower rated uh, Olympics in in certainly my lifetime. But um, NBC's doing their best job to make it uninteresting. Yeah, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Well, and you know, you've got an entire generation of athletes that certainly you and I probably grew up looking at you had the last of them really retire in this Olympics, which was Sean White. Well, that kind of made me mad because they put that behind a paywall. I mean, that,
0: you know, I guess maybe I should have downloaded Peacock, but we were, we were watching what we wanted to watch. And then that came on. Yeah. And then I couldn't find it. They just hid it behind Peacock. It just kind of upset me a
1: little bit. Yeah. I don't blame
0: you. we flying were, tomato. Did you, did you pay for it?
1: Um, I actually saw it somehow on TV. I, I, went, I was in Mon- I was in Montana, so perhaps you know, there were there were different geographical <laughs> constraints there. I don't know I don't know what, what was happening in Florida, but um, you know, I mean, I look back to, you know, there there's so many great Olympians over time, but Michael Phelps is obviously he's in the summer games. he's he's retired. Uh, I remember the days of Apollo Antoine Ono on short track speed skating. I mean, that was some of the most interesting Olympics I've ever watched. Uh, you had Sean White, you know, who just finished his last Olympics. And so, you know, I think the, the stage is ripe for who is going to capture that attention, um, you know, because attention and eyeballs ultimately means, means dollars, means production, means marketing, and, and all these different things. And I think we're in a bit of a lull, um, you know, until maybe the next generation kind of grabs hold of that. Okay, great. Let's go ahead and take our
0: first break. All right, and we're back. So it was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I remembered it while we were talking about football and anyways life comes at you fast there you go right
1: oh gosh take That's... daddy's Corvette yeah man I think I'm... it was a Corvette wasn't
0: it I don't remember what car I'm you know don't 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 <laughs> I've seen that movie a thousand <laughs> times and you know I I like to pride myself on movie facts and for some reason I'm just going blank right now
1: Gotcha. yep
0: all right so like I said this is I, I named this one the rundown because I wanted to talk with you about a bunch of big things that are happening on happening around our world right now and the way I want us to think about it today is really the way that a normal, a normal person. So we're not looking at necessarily a macro view, even though we're looking at macro issues. I really want to think about it from a very personal view. How am I looking at this through the lens of my portfolio and my 401k and my brokerage accounts, um, the way that I'm investing, but also in the way that I do to day to day life? You know, how is this affecting me at the gas pump grocery store, my work life? Yep. um, all that stuff. Will I be able to get the latest electronic that I ordered from whomever? No, that type of stuff, which I don't have anything on the way. I'm I'm set.
1: You don't have any washers that you ordered in mid-2020 that you're still waiting on pool delivery for? Um,
0: did I tell you that story? We we ended up waiting like four months or something like that for a dishwasher.
1: I think we might have talked about it last last episode.
0: Um, I don't – don't bring that back up. I still <laughs> – you know, I start scratching my neck and just start getting all nervous that some other appliance is going to break. <laughs> But I, I listen, I got to watch how watch how sloppy my kids are at washing dishes. And that's the best parent the best parenting advice I can never tell you is whenever you issue your kids chores, just have the expectation that this is going to add more work to me. Oh, 100%. But you at least get the benefit of them yep. learning how to work. Yeah. It's
1: it's more character building than it is efficient completion of a task.
0: Every every parental You know, edict or punishment that I ever give my children always has an equal effect on me. It's incredible. It's like
1: the old, you know, you need a vacation after going on a family vacation. I remember my dad saying that growing up, we'd get back from a seven-day trip to Disney, and he'd be like, you know, gosh, I gotta go to work tomorrow. I I need, you know, I need seven days in the wilderness to decompress from this adventure. Yep.
0: The only way that happens is, in my theory, a pandemic when they they quarantine you for 14 days on your way back.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's the only way that. praying for a positive COVID. Test. <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> all right so uh
0: i would say the top top line issue would be uh russia russia's invasion of the ukraine mm-hmm. so how are we looking at that from you know the tough sanctions that the u.s is starting to put on yep. russia and oil and gas pipelines yep
1: so kind of approaching this from from the everyday perspective and then i'll touch on markets briefly Really, energy is the first place that you'd have to go in terms of what's what's the current impact to the everyday person. Mm -hmm. And for that, you know, I'd take a look towards Europe. Uh, Germany, for the last um, number of years, has been working on a natural gas pipeline between Russia and their their state owned enterprise, which I believe is called Gazprom, to fund the German energy needs. And, you know, we could debate some things back and forth. They've shuttered some nuclear plants that could have generated energy that they needed. They've gone all in on renewables as kind of their core energy, which is where the way that the world's moving. But the reality is renewables cannot, you know, generate energy on demand. And that is the beauty of natural gas. And so the U.S. in general is blessed with a wide array of natural resources. We have gas, you know, I believe it's called the Marcellus Shale. Um, that, you know, I've seen estimates that there's enough natural gas there to generate a million years' worth of energy for the United States. And so, so you know, stuff. Part, part of America, you know, there was a point before oil prices went through kind of the COVID drop and shuttering of production and different things where, you know, we might have still been exporting some energy, but if you just added up the number of barrels and the number of metric tons of natural gas, the U.S. was technically energy self-sufficient there was not a net deficit from, from global countries that, that needed to be met by Saudi Arabia or kind of those traditional energy producers. Uh, Europe's in a much different place. And so, you know, add all that together, the net result, energy in pr- prices continue to increase. Oil at re- recording of this is north of $90 a barrel, knocking on the door of a hundred. I think it was the mid 2000s, the last time that we saw energy prices that high, I, I could be incorrect on that. Um, and so we're really kind of in a flashback where, you know, the, for the last number of years, what we've been talking about is development of renewables, less, less intensity on oil. Um, but that is a multi-decade transition. I mean, if you look at what, what countries are talking about, they're talking about 2050. And yeah. so that's 30 years from now, 28 years from now. And the process between here and there is, is going to be bumpy. Um, and you add in geopolitics and some of those regions that ultimately generate that that natural resources energy right now are not the most stable politically or the most friendly politically. And so that's really where the center of, of conflict resides. And I saw, you know, at the time of this recording, I believe that that pipeline is called Nord Stream or something along yeah. those lines, Nord Stream 2 or Nord something Stream like two. that. And Germany just called it off. They said We're, we – you know, which has really been – Um, You know, if there's been one one job that President Biden has been attempting to do, it's to get a united front. So whether it's France, whether it's Germany, whether it's the U.S., Russia really, you know, because it's in their own interest, wants to splinter that alliance, which is ultimately NATO. Right. And if they can get President Macron to say one thing, Chancellor, I forget who who replaced Merkel, but the Chancellor of Germany to say another and Biden to say another. Now you've got a divided front and and Putin will prosper in that, uh, in all likelihood. But. For now, you've seen a united front where Germany has accepting what's ultimately going to hurt them in the short term for this kind of broader geopolitical strife. And, you know, we'll see where that goes. But in the short term, you know, I just filled up my gas tank. It was like three forty five a gallon. Um, so this has already been happening because we don't have this production back online. But, you know, the other reality is the cure to high prices is high prices. Um <laughs> You know which is kind of a funny quip that fight fire with fire yeah, exactly fight <laughs> fire with fire the cure to high prices is high prices and the reasoning is, is twofold there one the break even of um other energy sources so let's just take renewables for example part of the reason those haven't been adopted as well is because the they're they're not cheaper at the current price mm-hmm. they become cheaper if oil keeps going up yeah and how long does it take you to bring those online? You know, th- those are all fair comments. But but that investment is now warranted from a just purely economic standpoint. Don't, don't count the greenhouse gases or any of these. It's just cheaper yep. at certain prices. The other reality is there is a lot of production that's currently offline in West Texas and Oklahoma. And, you know, and a lot of this is fracking or, or horizontal drilling or whatever you want to call it. Um, but the political whims that, that for the last couple of years have been very anti that sort of activity. High prices, which ultimately hit straight home to Wall, uh, Main Street, they hit, you know, consumers' pockets, um, that will change those political wins in a hurry. And so you've seen even President Biden start to talk about we need more energy production, we need oil prices to go down. Well, the result of that is to incentivize or to at least allow, development and drilling and, you know, reverse some of those, those, the rhetoric that we've seen over the last couple of years. And so in a way, the the cure to high prices is high prices. You'll see more production come online. You'll see substitutes begin to pick up and, you know, it'll work itself out in the end. Now, is that a six to 12 month workout? Is that a zero to three month workout? It, it may take some time. Um, but, you know, the, the chances that we see some you know, some runaway thing that can't be controlled with how much energy production can happen in America if the right – you know, if certain decisions are made, um, you know, that, that's fairly unlikely.
0: So how, how do you see uh, that um, – the Russian actions affecting the market in your personal opinion? Yeah.
1: So right here in the short term, the answer is negative. And the, the answer to that is because of, you know, the idea of risk. So, you know, the traditional financial academia, if you will, teaches that as risk increases um, our required returns increase. And right in the short term, that causes usually a drop in prices to account for that. And this is competing with, you know, some other things we'll talk about, which is high inflation, a Fed that's going to increase interest rates in all likelihood, slowing economic growth, even though growth is still positive, it's slowing versus the the very strong growth we've had over the last year and a half. Um, and so all of those things added together, combined with, you know, this idea of uncertainty that markets traditionally just hate. I mean, if there's one thing they, they you know, they almost hate uncertainty more than certain bad, right. you know, which is just really hard to wrap your head around. But, you know, bad things, if it's known, the market can easily discount. Yep. They can say, OK, well, you know, if earnings are going to drop this much, here's how much we should pay for a dollar of earnings in the S&P 500. Here's what it looks like two or three years out as we grow into it. And that, that's kind of what you saw during COVID. It was a certain bad, but you had the Federal Reserve there there to help you along the way. And so markets bottomed well before the actual um, economy in terms of production did or earnings did in terms of when they regained their prior peaks. And so that was a a it's not certain, you know, the the world is uncertain, but there was more certainty attached with that in terms of the market. Right now, there is massive uncertainty between where does inflation go over the next six months? I'd say it's more likely than not. It it goes lower. It'll still be above trend, but lower. Where do interest rates go? In all likelihood, they're increasing. And what the heck does Russia do with the Ukraine? Did they just recognize these two sovereign elements in eastern Ukraine, in which case, You know there'll be some sanctions and different things but everybody will pretty much just go on about their day yeah um if you invade kiev that's a whole different you know pot of potatoes that you got to dissect um you know and and is you know is, is nato willing to um you know i'd say military action still unlikely in terms of what the west is willing to do but that could destabilize things a little bit more and so that that's what the market's going through right now um you know the other reality competing with that is you know the point of maximum uncertainty traditionally is kind of a short-term bottom in markets. So if you were to go back to you know the Gulf War, the invasion of Iraq, the um, uh, annexation of Crimea, which is the last kind of Rush- Russian influence in terms of invading, even the invasion of Georgia um, yeah. a while ago, and and I couldn't put years to these necessarily, but traditionally what you see is that moment. It's really kind of a um, You know, they say buy the rumor, sell the news, or in this case, you know, what the markets traditionally do is sell the rumor of what's going to happen and buy the dip of the actual event Um, because the market's constantly trying to price in that future probability. Yep. And then when the market receives certainty and sees the path forward, they can discount that into the economics of businesses and and move forward from there. And so, you know, we we may not be too far from from kind of a shakeout in in a near term bottom for for the markets.
0: So going going into let's just go ahead and talk about the Fed. Where where do you see because we're looking at nine different rate hikes? Mm-hmm. That's what's uh the, the supposed to go with with the uh, Fed uh, Fed rates going up to two and a quarter. Yep. I mean how does that affect our day-to-day? Yep. And then you can actually you just go ahead and piggyback inflation onto that. Yep.
1: So they're they're tied hand in hand. Why mm-hmm. is the Fed in all likelihood going to raise rates? Because inflation's too high. Correct. And inflation has gone from a kind of a a nuisance and a Wall Street hand-wringing issue to a Main Street issue. And that's kind of what we want to talk about here. Inflation is beginning to hit consumers in the pocket where it hurts. The reality is consumers still have a lot of excess savings from the pandemic, from the transfer payments in terms of stimulus checks, uh, from enhanced unemployment benefits, from just wage growth. Um, But they're not benefiting as much as, you know, as the, the constituents of politicians would like to have. And so that's created a backdrop where, you know, Jerome Powell is ultimately an independent. He's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He's apolitical. He was nominated by a Republican, which was Donald, President Trump. Uh, he was kept on for a second term by a Democrat, President Biden. Um, but he still, you know, serves at the pleasure of the president. And we're in a midterm year, 2022. Um, you know, the... The Democrat, I think if there was a political strategist on the call, they'd say that the outlook's not extraordinarily strong. Traditionally, you have weakness for the incumbent party in the midterm. You know, Mm -hmm. you can go back to 2010 for uh, the Democrats with President Obama. You could go to 20, uh, I guess, be 18 for the Republicans. They they lost the, I think they lost the House. Um, And so you've already got a bad backdrop. And then you take, you know, what are geopolitical problems? You take inflation that's too high for consumers. "Quote unquote," and you've got a a politically motivated executive branch that wants the Fed to to kill inflation, and that's ultimately done by by increasing interest rates.
0: So back it up a little bit. Why, why do raise,
1: raising the interest rates help combat inflation? Yeah. So the best example of this was actually in the 1970s and 80s. This is the one time that that the Federal Reserve really ran this playbook, and I you know I wouldn't expect it it to look like this in terms of its right. its dramatic levels. Um, But you had persistently high inflation in the 1970s and 80s. It's ultimately what made Jimmy Carter a one-term president. Mm -hmm. Um, But presidents before and after him fought it. And ultimately Reagan, you could argue, killed inflation. And his chairman of the Federal Reserve was a gentleman by the name of Paul Volcker. And what Paul Volcker did was massively increase interest rates, which what that does, it raises the cost of borrowing money. It raises the cost of doing business. And you have – you know, if you get inflation ingrained in into society, you have this process of prices are increasing. Wages are increasing. They're all increasing at really too fast of a rate. Nobody's benefiting versus this just cost of price that's that's rocketing higher. So nobody's really doing better. Um, And what it takes in that is some sort of a reset. And how bad that reset is, it depends on how ingrained this inflation has become into the economy, which is part of the reason why the Fed's going to act in all likelihood pretty quick because they don't want to see a rerun of the 70s and 80s where it took 15 years to, you know, or however long to contain it. And so what raising that discount rate or the interest rate that the Federal Reserve sets does is, you know, if you're a business manager that's thinking about a new investment that's going to cost a lot of capital, raising that cost of capital decreases the profitability of that project. And so less ultimately less economic activity happens it actually caused a recession in the early 1980s but it reset those inflation expectations from a point that then you had the strongest period of economic growth um probably since post-world war ii in terms of from let's just say 1982 to 1999 i don't think there was a recession in that period um you know, just significant expansion for the economy, for wages, for workers, for employment, for the stock market across the board, because you you ripped out those inflation expectations that had been embedded in the economy and the oil embargo and a lot of other things were, were kind of side side points to that that contributed to it. But that's what raising that interest rate does. It decreases the profitability of certain projects that might have been profitable at zero percent interest rates. And so there's less dollars chasing assets. And as less dollars are chasing them, the price you have to pay goes down. And, you know, you could think about it in terms of gasoline. You know, if, if less trucks are being purchased or whatever, there's less gasoline being consumed. And so prices can kind of correct down and then get a better base to work off of. So it doesn't necessarily mean a recession has to happen. We're not – at this point of, you know, we've had a decade of 12% inflation or something like that, mm-hmm. where you, you just really have to, to increase the, the discount rate if you're the Federal Reserve. But something is likely warranted um, to tame it down a little bit.
0: Okay, very good. Let's go ahead and take our second break. All and right, we're back. Let's go ahead and continue the rundown here. All right, so housing prices. Um, obviously, we're, we're feeling it from all fronts. Especially, you know, the, the people that I would say that I feel for are new home buyers right now. You Amen. know, pe- people that are just coming out of college, that got their first job, they're wanting to look for a house. I mean, so what, what
1: are we seeing for housing prices in, in the coming years? Yeah. So I will echo your sentiment first which is I, my heart goes out to people that are graduating college now. Mm. Um, You know, it's a weird world in which case, you know, I'm somehow so much more lucky that I graduated college when I did and I bought my house in 2018. Right. And so I was on, you know, I mean, it's still after almost a decade of home price appreciation out of the financial crisis, but then you've seen, you know, in some markets a 50% move in two or three years and wages have increased, but not that much. I mean, a starting wage for, for corporate employee is not, 50 percent higher than it was in in 2014 or 15. Right. And so those people, frankly, you know, our hearts go out to them. And, and, you know, there's a a, and rents are also higher. So it's not like you just say rent an apartment for nine hundred dollars a month and and go on about the road. You know, what I'd encourage listeners to do or I hope they've already done is listen to our economic forecast breakfast. That was given by by chief economist at, at First Trust, Brian Westbury. He does a wonderful job talking about a lot of these things like inflation and home prices that we've already done. I'll echo his comment, which is the U.S. economy massively underbuilt houses between 2008, 9 and about 2019. Yep. And homes are, on on the one hand, one of the greatest drivers of economic activity because you think about all the trades and all the different products and all the consumption that's built into buying a house and, and making a house. Um, so the fact that we need to build more is actually good for the economy, uh, because it's going to keep all these, these things moving. It keeps credit growth going in the economy. I mean, it creates new dollars. All that's good. But the fact that we underbuilt for a decade means there's no short-term answer. Yep. Um, you now have, and part of this is likely COVID driven, but you also have this, this reality of underbuilt housing combined with the reality that millennials uh, kind of older millennials, I'm I'm on the younger side of millennials, but certainly older millennials who might be up to 35 years old or something like that, um, maybe even 40, I, yeah. I don't know. Um, they've made some of the same decisions that that baby boomers did at younger ages, which means family formation and ultimately means wanting to buy a house. And so demand for housing, you kind of had that inflection point where more people want houses and they don't want the studio apartment in the, in the, you know, if we're talking our local economy, you know, Hyde Park or Munn Park or, you know, the, these really nice areas, they're okay for trading that for, for a house in the suburbs. But you have this lack of supply, a lot more demand. And, you know, Economics 101 is higher prices.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine that people are, with the information that we have right now, I'd imagine that people are buying houses at a much younger age or at least interested in it because that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And, it you know, again, to our local economy, it's way difficult here in Florida, especially with the the tax cuts back in 2018 that were driving people here, uh, as well as the innovation and um, changes that are happening as far as, as opportunities to work. And then you had COVID and the fact that we were in open state, really changing things. It's just, it's mounting up yep. multiple different yep. things. And then the housing shortage on, on
1: yep. top of that. I, you know, I think if I were to summarize the housing market, I would be surprised, you know, we're not, we're not in the housing market, so we, we're not experts on what prices do. But if you take that supply and demand backdrop, I would be surprised if prices had a significant correction. Should or could they level out from here? I would not be surprised at all to I see should, that rate of yeah. growth stop. But there's just going to be so much demand that I think it's hard to say that, that prices are going to go back to where they were in 2018. Okay, very good.
0: So real quick, uh, Justin Trudeau. The, everything that's going on there, I'm going to hit you, it hits you hard with this. We got a little bit of time before our next break, but real quick freedom and fear, yep. what I'll ask you. What are, yep. what are your thoughts right now? How, is, how are our neighbors to the north going to yep. look like affecting our day to day?
1: Yeah. So you've seen really since 2020 just massive micro experiments across the entire globe in terms of this trade off between freedom and safety. Um, and in general, you have to give up one for the other. And so, you know, the first, the first tranche of this really happened. You know, you could argue in the U.S. with the Patriot Act, people were willing to exchange their freedoms for safety. Mm-hmm. And now you're at a point where governments, depending on where you're looking at Trudeau's government in Canada, which is uh, kind of executive action uh, approved the ability to freeze assets, to confiscate assets, and then sell assets of not really illegal. Um, I mean, there's some things that are breaking laws, but yeah, not but mischief, not criminal activity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, under really money laundering kind of rules, confiscate assets and sell them, uh, fund the government really with them if they don't meet the expectations of behavior. And so now you're seeing these two things butt up against each other, where for a long time people were willing to trade a little bit of freedom for safety. Now you're getting some pushback. And I think now we're in, you know, in, in stocks you'd say this is where the market gets made. And people can vote with their feet to a certain extent. Now, cross-country, that that's a little bit different. But we're seeing this in the U.S. People are voting with their feet to say, I like the way, you know, that's why the U.S. is made with 50 states and, and states' rights are important. Uh, federal government's important, too. But each state has some latitude to construct it the way that their constituents and population want it to be done. And that, that's what the voting process is. And so I think you're going to continue to see that where, where there's some, you know, tension there between the two and where we shake out, you know, will be very interesting.
0: Very cool. Let's go ahead and take our last break. So last couple of questions. I really appreciate your time here. Um, I think, I think the most important question um, for this podcast is how do we get so myopic as investors? How do we, how do we get so just singular focused and thinking this is gonna be the end all be all decision.
1: Yep. So, you know, I think one of our first uh, episodes that we did talked about behavioral finance. Mm, And one of those big terms is called myopic loss aversion, which is the combination of myopic, which really means we focus on one thing and in effect shorten our time horizons. We all have time horizons, whether it's retirement income planning or whatever, that are usually multi-decade time horizons. Or if it's you know multi-generational, it could be five decades. Um, We shorten our time horizons to meet the moment of today, particularly the second half of that loss aversion. When we are losing money, we have this compounding of we focus on one thing and losses hurt worse than gains feel good. So losses hurt more than gains feel good. And so that just shrinks our attention to one singular moment in time when in reality we have five decades to prepare for. And so ultimately investors where possible if you can match your time horizon to the time horizon of your needs mm-hmm. rather than the time horizon of your twitter feed or oh, your gosh. you know cnn.com you know news articles you know the, the media industry is focused on eyeballs which means focusing on short time horizons yep the reality of investment management and financial planning is long time horizons those two things could not be in more conflict and so just recognizing that fact and attempting to manage your behavior through that is the best thing that you can do absolutely and, and you know i
0: i always love yes we you know you take a younger person they start saving you know they might have 30, 20 30 40 years of saving but even if you're at that juncture of retirement you still have to look at 20 or 30 years of life expectancy remaining so you, you it's not a full stop once you get to that retirement doorstep you have to continue on and your money has to make money And there's just so much there that we should not make our decisions based on the latest hit piece that was just published by insert whatever news media. 100%. So what are you listening to or reading right now?
1: So I have a uh, a laundry list of books on my shelf in my office. So one of the things I've 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 set the goal of that I haven't put into action yet is to start reading more in terms of just books. I've spent a lot of time listening to podcasts. I've spent a lot of time, ultimately, in days like this, just tracking the news and just trying to trying to be the most up to date. But I think there's a lot of there's there's a lot of benefit in just kind of the the structural reading process in long you know like we talked about longer term mm-hmm. uh it's easy to get caught up in the moment so i personally haven't done a great job of it but i want to spend you know this year doing some of that so i've got a i've got a few books that i've got but uh, i haven't picked out which one i'm going to start yet perfect so uh what what are you most excited about in the world around you right now innovation continues to to happen at an increasingly rapid pace of change so to quote Trudeau earlier he he had a quote and we put this out in an, in an article to clients Um, I found him back in 2017, a lot of people have said this, but change has never happened this fast and it'll never happen this slow again in terms of technological innovation and progress. If you look at what, you know, even just take healthcare and some of the things that we're beginning to do, um, you know, there's trials going on in cancer treatment and Alzheimer's treatment and Parkinson's treatment. There's, you know, the development of what Elon Musk is doing within his myriad of companies. Um, Not all those things are going to work but some that we don't think will work will, and that is the drumbeat of progress that continues to march on. That's fun. All right, so how can people reach out to you? You can find me at Allen & Company. Like I said, uh, Chris Hammond, Portfolio Manager and Financial Advisor with the Allen, Albert, and Houghton Hammond Group, so you can call Allen Company and ask for Chris.
0: Awesome. Again, this is Holland Henderson, Financial Advisor with Allen & Company as well. Go to our website at alleninvestments.com. There, you can reach both Chris and myself. Uh, There's also just a myriad of uh, of great content that's been created and some wonderful blogs. So go there, alaninvestments.com, and we'll catch you next time.
1: The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Investment advisory services offered through Allen & Company of Florida LLC, Allen & Co., and its affiliate LPL Financial LLC, LPL, registered investment advisors. Securities offered through LPL member FINRA SIPC.